We are looking at a, studying a series of messages I've entitled The Cross from Christ's Perspective. And we have identified the series by the word cup. Remember that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed, Father, if it be Thy will, let this cup pass from Me. Now we've learned that there is a cup that we all have in this life to drink, if you will. Um, But Jesus' cup was unique and different from any other cup. In fact, when one of the disciples came to Him and said, Lord, grant that we can sit on Your left hand and on Your right. Two of His disciples came when You enter into Your glory. He said, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to eat, drink? And they said, we are able. But in reality... No one is able to drink that cup. Not because He didn't give permission, but because they don't have the ability or the capacity. Listen to this. Nor were they qualified to drink the cup that Christ drank. Now, the reason that's important is because the journey to the cross is a journey that only Christ can do. All of us... From the moment we were conceived, the Bible says that we were conceived in sin, and we truthfully are no different than they were in the days of Noah when the people were thoughts were only continuously evil and wicked. Because of not only the fact that we were born into sin, not only because has our thought life been pervaded by sins, but the actions, the actions that we've engaged in would cause that as well. If this TV comes on one more time, y'all might see your pastor sin. <laughs> The point I'm making is, is because of sin, all of us are disqualified for breaking the cup that Christ drank. Three ingredients of this cup. And, and the importance of this, is, and the reason we're studying this, is obviously this is paving the way for our salvation. The hope is, is that we would rejoice and be glad when we are reminded again of the price that Christ, that Christ paid in order for us to be saved. I, I talk to Christians and even struggle myself to make salvation so simple. And salvation itself is simple, but the cost is tremendous. The, the, the cost is tremendous. And what Christ did on our behalf, I, I believe, ought to be something that is before us in such a way that we can do nothing but become overwhelmed with gratitude and overwhelmed with worship and adoration and praise and honor and glory. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And that seeing this fresh perspective of the cross and the price that He paid for me and for you, for us to come into the family of God, that it would lead us to overcome ourselves, if you will, would also allow us to not take sin so lightly, to not be so quick to say, well, I'm a sinner and everybody's a sinner. It's just the way it is. But to understand that every sin of commission, the act of sin that we do, Every sin of omission, the things that we don't do that we should. Not slip of the tongue, but every, uh, certainly that. But, but oftentimes, our words are sharp. We're not even aware of it. That as we see these things, as we experience these things, as these things happen to us, 
that the Holy Spirit of God would work in our lives at that moment to remind us that yes, that was a sin. Yes, it was a sin that Christ died for so that I will not experience the penalty of that sin. But it also ought to be a sin that I hate because I'm reminded of the price that Christ paid for that. That's the purpose of this series. So we've already seen that in order to even be qualified to be the Savior of the world, the the first element of the cup was that He was subjected to the hour of the power of the darkness that Satan and the demons and the forces of hell colluded upon the cross and that they unleashed and unloaded everything that they could possibly bring, not in any way for Christ to earn our salvation. Our salvation is not paid for by enduring the wrath of Satan. Let's be clear about that. A lot of people think that that's the case. A lot of people think that Jesus died on the cross, went to hell, endured the wrath of Satan, all that he had, and and then whipped him in hell and overcame death, hell, and the grave, and that's how we did. Beloved, listen to me carefully. Your sin debt and my sin debt was not owed to the devil. Our sin debt... It is not, we are not indebted to Satan because of our sin. Satan is a sinner himself. And if there was ever any salvation that would come to Satan, it would be the salvation that needs to come to you. Now, now that is obviously not going to happen. But let's be clear. He's a sinner like you and I are sinners. Our sin debt is not to Satan. Beloved, the one that we have offended by our sin is a holy God. The Father is the one that we are indebted to because of our sin. The Father is the one who ultimately separates us from Him in a place called hell because of our sin. We, our sin debt, the debt, the price of our sin that is owed is owed to a holy and righteous God and and honestly can never be paid even throughout an eternity of hell. The eternity of hell is is never enough to even pay for one sin. So when Satan and demons came, the purpose of Satan and demons coming was to disqualify Christ from being the Savior of the world. If they could get Him to sin, if they could get Him to come down from the cross if they could get him to not drink the the complete cup that Christ had to drink in order for us to be saved, and we're understanding more and more about what that cup is, then, then we would not have a Savior, and we still would be waiting for a Savior to come. Christ had to be sinless to be the sacrifice for our sin. Make sense? So when we are talking about... What Satan and the demons did, yes, they did to Jesus on the cross. Yes, there were two others. Yes, He endured there in the center, crucified between two thieves, what the other two did not, which is the reason why the Bible says in the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, the Bible says that He was marred beyond human recognition. I want us to turn to Isaiah chapter 52 and we're going to start here and we're going to come back to here. We've got to look at some other verses. We've seen this verse before, but Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, "...just as many were astonished at you, my people..." So His appearance was marred more than any man." 
His appearance was marred more than any man, and His form more than the sons of men. So what the witnesses there at the cross saw that day was a man hung on the cross, beaten and battered and crucified. But what they, what, what they witnessed without seeing the spiritual realities were taking place was his form and his visage, as some translations say, morphing, changing, transforming in their midst and all they could do is watch it and not understand what was taking place. It would be the most gruesome thing that you could ever lay your eyes on because there's not anyone in a human body that had ever endured the things that our Savior endured. The first being Satan and the demons unleashing and unloading on him everything in their arsenal. And they did that because God granted them, Luke chapter 22, verse 53, the hour of the power of the darkness. And that happened. Remember, Christ was on the cross for six hours, three hours in the light. He spoke and said some things within those three hours. And then you know that where we are now in our study is, is darkness approached. Darkness approached. And now we're going to have three hours in the dark. And then darkness departs. And when darkness departs, Christ speaks in the three hours in the light. He is silent as a lamb before his shearers is silent. Three hours in the dark. The darkness departs. Christ screams in agony. Says another saying and gives up the ghost. Last week in our study, what we discovered was that there are several covenants that God has established throughout uh, the pages of the Bible and throughout the history of time. A covenant is a legally binding agreement between two or more parties. And in that legally binding agreement, there are conditions, there are conditions that are to be met if that covenant is to be in place. We have studied the covenants in the past, and, and we see, for example, that in some cases the covenants are what's called a unilateral covenant. When God established a covenant with Noah, for example, uh, God put all the conditions on the covenant upon himself. There was never in the Noahic covenant, if you will do this, then I will do that. All the conditions of the Noahic covenant, God simply says, you're going to see a rainbow in the sky. When you see a rainbow in the sky, that is my promise that I will never, ever destroy the world again by a flood. By a flood. He didn't say, if you act right, if you behave, if you believe, if you live right, I'll never do it. All the conditions of the Noahic covenant were placed upon God himself. In the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God gave with Moses, which also came with the distribution of the law, that was a bilateral covenant. Now think about it this way. If you ride a unicycle, you ride a bicycle with one wheel. Una means one. Unicycle is a one-wheeled cycle. A bilateral sounds like bicycle. Bicycle has two wheels. That means that there be two parties involved in that covenant. When God established the covenant with Moses... He gave the giving of the laws, and you can read about it in, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, and read about it in Exodus chapter 20, chapter 24, where God says, if you will do this, and if you will do that, if you will live this way, if you will worship me, if you will have no other gods before me, if you will do all, if you will do all of these things, then I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will watch over you, I will care for you, I will prosper you, I will carry you into the land. In other words, that was a, that was a bilateral covenant where there were covenant conditions 
conditions on both sides. The people had to do a part and God had to do a part. If people did their part, God would do their part. That came together. So in the Bible, there are both unilateral, unilateral, all the conditions are upon God, and there are bilateral conditions upon the man. What we've also seen in our study of the covenants, particularly last Sunday, was that in the giving of the covenants, and for example, there are uh, there's at least a Noahic covenant, there's the Mosaic covenant, there's also the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God established with David, that he would establish his throne forever. Uh, and Jeremiah tells us about this new covenant, about a new covenant. And what we learned last week is that every one of us who are saved, we are saved because we have been brought into a new covenant relationship with Christ. And this new covenant was ratified. It was was announced earlier in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 and following. But it was ratified when Jesus says this cup representing his blood, this cup is the new covenant. And what Jesus was saying is, is that when he shed his blood on the cross, he was ratifying the new covenant, initiating, if you will, not announcing, but bringing into reality the new covenant upon which every person who is going to be saved, be in the family of God, would have their sins forgiven have all the blessings and benefits of being in the right relationship with God will come through a new covenant relationship with Christ that was initiated. We remember it through the Lord's Supper and partaking of the cup. What we saw last week is that in a couple of the covenants in the Old Testament, there was a presence of darkness that was there and God spoke out of the darkness. Now let's be clear. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. At the same time, as the sun was going down, God came down in Genesis chapter 15 and in the ratifying of the Abrahamic covenant, the Bible says that great darkness came down and a smoking pot lantern signifying the presence of God passed through the carcasses of the animals that were killed and and divided. Abram was asleep at the time because it was a unilateral covenant. God and Abraham didn't hold hands and walk through the carcasses with the conditions of the covenant being on both. Abram fell asleep, saw the presence of God walk through all the conditions of the Abrahamic covenant that he would bless him and multiply and that all the families of the earth would be blessed through the Abrahamic covenant. All the conditions were on God, not on Abraham. God was going to do this through Abraham, but the presence of God in ratifying that covenant was not a bright light too glorious that would have consumed Abram and anyone else who would have been near, but was the presence of God enshrouded. I use the word enshrouded, right? Covered in darkness. Now, now I know we define darkness as the absence of light, but God can also, God can also gather light and hide himself in light. Because if he didn't, right? No one's laid eyes on God. If they didn't, his holiness and his glory would consume them. The Bible says that no one can see God and live. There has to be a covering. And in the Abrahamic covenant, what we saw was this covering of God's presence with darkness. We also saw that covering in Exodus chapter 24 in the giving of law. Now, we didn't see the darkness there, but we saw the Mosaic covenant where God met with Moses uh, on top of the mountain and God gave the, the, tent, the tablets, the commandments, and God <laughs> indicated all the conditions of the people. And the people said all that God has said we will do. They probably have never collectively lied together like that ever before and probably never will again because everything that God said that they would, everything that they told God they would do, they immediately didn't do. 
And though we don't see the presence of light in the ratifying of the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus passage, in the retelling of the covenant in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4, we saw darkness was mentioned. And we got to Hebrews chapter 12 again in the retelling of the story. In Hebrews chapter 12, we saw darkness mentioned there. No, God does not have to use darkness to establish a covenant. We're just seeing that He did. Does that make sense? He did in the Abrahamic covenant. He did in the Mosaic covenant. And He did at the cross. The Bible indicates in Matthew chapter 27, it indicates in Luke, and it indicates in Mark, all three of the Gospels indicate that, that uh, uh, talk about, explain, or not explain, but tell us about the darkness that was over the land. What we don't know about the word land is how much of the land was covered in darkness. Certainly it would have been all of Israel, but was it the whole earth? We, we don't know. When I get to heaven, that's one thing that I would like to know. What was covered? Where did the darkness come? Where did the darkness end? What was it like on the edges of the darkness? The Bible doesn't give us any of those things. The, the Bible is from man's attempt. The best that he can do from the eyewitnesses, they describe it this way as uh, Luke says, the sun was obscured. How do you like that word? The sun was obscured, New American Standard says. Literally, in the Hebrew, what it says is, is the sun failed. It failed. It was so dark, it was if the sun fell. They're describing what they saw and what they experienced using language that, that they would have. The, the language is that the darkness arrives, it's there for three hours, and then the darkness departs is the language of Scripture. And what I'm trying to help you see and understand is is that what Christ saw on the cross in addition to the believers that were there before Him, in addition to the unbelievers, in addition to Satan and demons and all the things that we've looked at the last several weeks that Christ would have seen from the cross, He also would have seen the Father encompassed in darkness make His way and make His presence known at the cross as well to ratify the new covenant through the blood of Christ. We think about, okay, so God makes appearance at the cross. It's to ratify the new covenant. But what does that mean? What did God do when he came to the cross? Well, well some would be, <coughs> excuse me, some would, might think that once Satan had endured, uh, once the Savior had endured enough of Satan's wrath, God came and in the presence drove them away. That's not true. That's not what happened. It did stop. The hour of the power of the darkness ended when the darkness arrived. But God didn't stop it. Christ, remember from Colossians, He disarmed the principalities and the powers. They gave everything they could do, and when they had exhausted their means and ability, when the darkness, when God came, the hour of the power of the darkness ceased. Now God is there, present over the cross, and I promise you, He doesn't come as like, as what, what would we like to think? Well, He came to comfort His Son. He came to check on Him. The Father would have come to, to check on His Son. Right? After all, the, what we know of the, of the relationship between the Father and the Son is that this is a relationship that is extended in eternity past. Jesus has always existed in eternity past. They enjoyed, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are co-eternal, co-existent, and co-equal. They have always, always existed at the same time. The plan for our salvation was put in place before the foundation of the world. When Christ was on this earth, twice this recorded in Scripture, both at His baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration, it was the Father who said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And here at the cross, God makes an appearance at the cross. And though we can't turn exactly to see the details of what happened, 
We can study the evidence of Scripture to know what happened and see exactly what took place when the Father met His Son at the cross. And the way we do that is we look at what's called the investigative evidences. In other words, the Gospels record the Gospels record that darkness was there and darkness departed. We have to study the rest of the pages of Scripture to understand what happened. God came. Why did it happen? And how does it benefit us? And that's what we look at today. So with, with that in mind, I want you to... We're answering the question... What did the Father do when He met His Son at the cross? That's the question that we're going to answer today. So I want you, to, I want you with that in mind, I want you to turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 1. And we're going to have to turn to a couple of pages of Scripture, but I think it'll make sense as we, as we walk through. <coughs> Romans chapter 1 is Paul's letters to the church at Rome. And we're familiar with Romans chapter 1, verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The word gospel there is a word that means good news. Good news. In fact, the gospel is good news. But the reason the gospel is good news is it's only good news after you understand the bad news. And once you understand the bad news of your condition and my condition before God and the helpless situation that we find ourselves and the fact that once we hear the bad news, we are ready to receive the good news, the gospel becomes the good news that gives us hope. So what do I mean by the bad news? Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The Bible says this, For the wrath of God, now look at this language, is revealed, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now we're going to have to talk about uh, uh, a theme that we don't like to discuss and don't like it's not popular most of your modern contemporary churches and the pragmatism of their preaching will never deal with the wrath of God but uh, we need to understand biblically speaking the wrath of God is a real thing now God is slow to anger and God is gracious and kind his loving kindness exceeds all any person's loving kindness. But we also must understand that God is a holy God. Yes, He's a loving God, but He's also a just God, and He must punish sin. He must punish sin. And God's punishment for sin is His wrath. Now notice what it says. It says the wrath of God is revealed. Now it doesn't say will be revealed in the future. This is a present condition that's happening now. Now I didn't know this whenever I was lost. No one ever told me, perhaps I heard it, perhaps some of the old-fashioned preachers, they would say it a, a whole lot and, and people might hear it and, and remember it but not exactly understand it. But what I didn't know when I was lost is that the wrath of God was resting on me. Now, not the full wrath of God because God is patient and God is kind. But the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Well, what's the standard upon which the wrath of God rests? What is the standard? The, the, what is God's standard? Notice this, Mark your Bible, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Against all unrighteousness of men. That's the standard. God is perfect, and God expects perfection. 
And when we fall short of the glory of God, doesn't matter what definition of sin you want it to be, whether it's the general word for sin that has the idea of missing the mark, whether it's the word for transquicity, which means um, iniquity, transgression and iniquity, which means that there was a straight path and we made it crooked. All right? Whether we transgress the ways of God, which means go cross against the ways of God, uh, sin by iniquity, which is the crooked way instead of the straight way, or the general word for sin, all of us have sinned, and the wrath of God is revealed. Notice it's not against sin, it is against sinners. So when you have this little cliche that says God loves the sinner but hates the sin, it's not the (laughs) sin that God judges, it's the sinner that God judges. And therefore, you need to be careful in separating the sin from the sinner because God doesn't make that distinction. When a person is under the wrath of God, they are separated from God throughout all of eternity in a place God called hell. God doesn't separate the sin and put them in a nice little bundle and cast the sin into hell. <clears throat> he takes the sinner and casts the sinner into hell, and rightfully so, because he is a holy, godly, righteous God, holy, godly, righteous judge who must punish sin. And the punishment of sin against this God is His wrath. Now, look over with me in John chapter 3. I understand that John chapter 3 is a, is a fantastic verse, uh, chapter in the Bible, and we all love John chapter 3, verse 16. John 3, 16, we have this verse memorized. For God so loved the world, John 3, 16, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But we also need to know John 3, 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world. Why not? But that the world might be saved through him, because verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged or condemned already. So a person who is not saved, who does not believe on Christ, listen, the Bible clearly says that they are judged already, condemned already. Now what does that mean? Go down to verse 36. John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Aren't you glad for that? But now think about this. He who does not obey the Son will not see life. But, now look at this, and look at this language carefully. But the wrath of God abides. Beloved, that's present tense. That's present reality on the life of an unbeliever now. The wrath of God abides on him. An unbeliever might argue and say, huh, I sin all the time. I don't experience the wrath of God. I mean, if this is if this is all God's got, if this is the wrath, I'm good. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. No, 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 no. Just because the wrath of God is resting upon you right now doesn't mean that you are yet at this time experiencing the full measure of God's wrath. You see, God is patient and God is kind and God is slow to anger and God has given you an opportunity though His wrath rests upon you. He is kind and patient and gracious and giving you an opportunity to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so that you do not have to experience and endure the wrath of God in full measure. 
But just because you're not experiencing the wrath of God in full measure at this time does not mean that the Bible is not being truthful when it says the wrath of God rests upon you. Go with me if you would. Go with me if you would to the book of Revelation and let's see what it's going to be like when the wrath of God is unleashed in its capacity. There are a couple places that that we can look at. Look, look with me in, in, in Revelation chapter 6 and we are going to get back to the study of Revelation. We've got some other things we've got to do first. But in Revelation chapter 6, this is the pouring out of God's wrath in the tribulation. This is the beginning of the tribulation period. And so what we see here in Revelation chapter 6 is we see that these seals are broken. And with the breaking of these seals upon this scroll, the tribulation, the wrath of God is revealed from from heaven. And what I want to see, because we're not studying the seals right now, I just want to go down to verse 9. Verse 9. So Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, the Bible says that when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, He says, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice. As you go down a little bit further, what we see in the sixth seal, he says, when I broke, when I looked, I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and he's pouring out his wrath there. Notice what it says in verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man, they hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains and they said to the mountains and to the rocks. Now listen, they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. Now look at this. They were warning the they were warning the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and to kill them, to hide them. They wanted to escape. Escape what? They wanted to escape from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Beloved, there is coming a day when the wrath of God that is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And there's coming a day when the wrath of God, that present tense rest resides on unbelievers, will be felt and will be dealt with in full capacity and no one is able to endure. They would give anything in that moment to hide themselves from the wrath of God. Go over to Revelation chapter 14, if you would. This is the doom for the worshipers of the beast. And, and, and by the way, these verses, while they are speaking in, about the wrath of God in a specific setting situation, will ultimately be the wrath that every unbeliever experiences from God. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9, Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand... Now look at this, verse 10. And here's what I mean by the measure of God's wrath. He will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Now look at this. Which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger... 
and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone. Now look at this. In the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his of his name. The smoke of their torment goes up for how long? Forever and ever. Ultimately, every Satan and the demons of hell and every unbeliever will ultimately be cast into the eternal lake of fire. And in addition to the torment and punishment, the reason that is, is because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And even though unbelievers at this current time are not experiencing the wrath of God in full measure. John chapter 3, verse 36 is still true. The wrath of God abides on Him. So every person who is an unbeliever because of their sin, the wrath of God is what's coming. And that's the bad news. But I want to pause for just a moment because I think that sometimes, I don't think we understand this as lost people, number one. And I think sometimes as saved people, we want to move on from it too quickly. And I think, therefore, one of the reasons that people struggle with their salvation, it could be that they're not saved, but it also could be because they don't truly understand the extent to which Christ went in order to purchase their salvation and to provide their pardon and to forgive them of their sin. Every person from the moment they were conceived, David said, I was conceived in sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. The wrath of God abides on them. And I want you to understand that that was true of you before the good news of the gospel came to you. And so what I want us to do is is I don't want us to quickly look at the escape from the wrath of God. I want us to just briefly, as much as we can in this moment, feel the burden, the weight of our sin, of our brokenness. I want us to think about the sin in our life. Listen, you sin daily and so do I. You have a sharp tongue. You have actions that are not pleasing to God. You have attitudes that are not godly and righteous and holy. You, like me, would be embarrassed and ashamed if the things that we were thinking and the things that we were doing were put on public display for all of us to see. Every one of us would be embarrassed and ashamed if that were the case today on the sin that we've committed probably already today. I want us to understand and just think that all these sins, listen, sins that we do, and we didn't think they're sins. Until later on, God convicts us. Why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why did I? Why, why, why? We don't even take time. But listen, those things that we do when the Holy Spirit convicts us of those things are all worthy and deserving of the wrath of God. My prayer for us as a church is that you and I would understand that every sin that we've ever committed, past, present, and future, the wrath of God had to be poured out on that sin. 
God's wrath is you are not immune to God's wrath. Your, your pet sins are not immune to God's wrath. The sin that you inherited from your parents or your grandparents that runs through your family, and this is just the way that you are because you've always been that way. Or the sin that you rationalize and trivialize and justify because you just think that it's just the way that I am and all of us are sinners. Listen, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. The wrath of God had to be paid for each and every one of those sins. And beloved, I want you and I to come to the place that we hate our sin. We don't want it to be part of our life. We we don't want it. Yes, we're going to do it. We will never be perfect this side of heaven. But may we do it remorsefully. And may we do it confessing it. And may we live our lives humbly before God, understanding that the wrath of God is what we deserve because of that sin. And there will be people, the vast majority of people, listen, great is the way that leads to destruction. The vast majority of people on this world will spend eternity in hell, enduring the wrath of God for ever and ever and ever. We just so flippantly take God's name in vain. So flippantly tell a lie. So flippantly have an attitude. So flippantly be in a worship service and not engage in worship. Oh, how I hope that we will become a people who understand the price that was paid for each and every one of our sins. And for God's sake, stop taking them lightly. Go with me to Romans chapter 5. We've got to get to the good news. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, against ungodliness. Now, what about us though? As believers, I want you to understand that a person who still has the wrath of God abiding on them obviously does not have peace with God. You can't have peace with God and the wrath of God abiding on you at the same time. Right? For those of us who are saved, those of us who are justified, in my Bible this is entitled the results of justification. And I want to look in Revelation chapter 5 verses 1 through 9. The Bible says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, by faith, we, who is we, we are the believers... Revelation chapter 5, 1, having been justified. Now, the word justified is an interesting word. It means more than just as if I'd never sinned, but I think that's a good way for people to remember it. Justify just as if I had never sinned. It's not just that God wipes the slate clean. Beloved, if God simply wipes your sin slate clean in an instant, it's dirty again. Look, we don't need God to wipe our slate clean, our sin slate clean. We need Him to take our sin nature out and give us His nature. So, so therefore, having been justified by faith, now look at this, we believers, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if we have peace with God, that means we're not under the wrath of God. We have peace with God because we are justified and we're justified. We know that by faith. And how do we get there? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also, now look at this. Because we have peace with God, and because we have been justified, even the tribulations that we experience work for our good. What do I mean by that? Look at what it says. Not only this, but we exult in our tribulations. Anybody here exult in the tribulations? 
If you understand that you're no longer under the wrath of God, but you have peace with God, you've been justified by faith, we can exult in our tribulations. Why? Because those tribulations are not the pouring out of the wrath of God upon us. Those tribulations are not the hatred of God towards our sin. We have peace with God. We have been justified. Therefore, when tribulations come, then we know that those tribulations are for the purpose of working all things together for our good. That's what Romans 8 tells us. So he says this, that that we exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Listen, we can exult in tribulations because at the end of those tribulations, we are going to look more like Christ. He's conforming us into His image and likeness. We come out better based upon the tribulations that we go through. If we could take time today to do a theology of suffering and trials and tribulation in a believer's life, every one of us would leave here today and we would beg God to bring more tribulation into our lives because of the benefits and the blessings that it received, that we receive as believers going through tribulations. If you have a theology of suffering as a believer, a theology of tribulations, listen, and you understand that all things are working together for good, then those things are God at work in your life. And stop trying to get rid of them so quickly. Stop trying to put them off. But let let God work His purposes in those tribulations and even come to a place that you can exult in those tribulations knowing that God is at work in every one of those because we have the peace of God abiding on us. When did this happen? Verse 6. For while we were still helpless. Now look at this. At the right time. Galatians 4.4 4 says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son to be born, who ultimately would die. Here, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now we're, now it's tying back into the cross. You see that? Now it's tying into the cross. We were helpless under the wrath of God. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would <coughs> even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Beloved, if you mark your Bibles, you're going to want to mark verse 9. Much more than having now been justified. How? By His blood. You see, we're tying it back into the cross. How, how does this peace come about? How does joy, how can how does exulting in tribulation, how does justification come about? It all comes through the cross. Now look at this. Having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved. From what? From the wrath of God through Him. Now, in your understanding of what it means to be saved, it means a plethora of things. But one of the things that it means is that you have been saved from the wrath of God which abided, now it's past tense, on you when it comes in full strength and in full measure. That leaves us one last question. How? How? If God is a holy, just God who must punish sin, and if the wrath of God abides on unbelievers, 
And if now the evidence shows that I am saved, I have peace with God, and the wrath of God does not abide on me, and the reason it doesn't is because Jesus died for me on the cross, and I escaped the wrath of God. Listen, the wrath, listen to me carefully, because God is holy and because God is just, God must punish sin. God cannot overlook sin. God cannot excuse your sin. God cannot give you an acquittal. God cannot pronounce the guilty innocent. If there was an earthly judge that you as a victim stood before your accusers and the judge looked at them knowing the wrong that they have done and if the judge simply says you are free, you would not say that judge was just. You would say that judge was unjust. Beloved, God cannot just escape. God God cannot just let you escape from your sin. The wrath of God must come in full measure. As an unbeliever, the wrath of God rests upon you. But when God came to the cross, He didn't come to comfort His Son. He didn't come to check on Him. He didn't come to shoo away the devil and the demons. There on the cross oblivious to the physical realities of the people who were there and watching, but not to the demons and Satan and the angels who were there, the spiritual realities that were observing. When the Father came to the cross in a way that you and I can never understand, and because this happened, we will never have to experience it, The wrath of God was poured out on His Son on the cross on our behalf. Go with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? 53.1 says... And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I'm just going to read this. We're going to get down to it. But just listen to this as you're finding it there in your Bible. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. Nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised. And forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All we like sheep go astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has called the iniquity of us all. Did you see that? Verse 6, the Lord has called the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He was oppressed and was not afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, Because he had done, look at this, he had done no violence. 
nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And something that I will never understand and something you will never understand and we will never ever be able to grasp. We can only by faith believe. Verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. When the Father came to the cross in a way that we'll never understand, He poured out the totality of His wrath for the sin of the entire world on the cross that all who would believe in His name would be forgiven of their sins, be justified, and have peace. Peace with God. This is why the Father had to come to the cross. And this is why it was necessary for Him to be there. And why in that three hours of darkness in a way that you and I will never understand. In that time period, God poured out in full strength all of His wrath on His Son. And beloved, that is the second element of the three. And they become increasingly devastating in nature. We're not there yet. We've got to get to the third one. And we'll begin laying the foundation for that next week. What have we seen so far? Three hours in the light. Satan and his demons come three hours in the dark. The Father comes. We're going to sing a couple of songs. And I want you to focus now with this understanding in mind. I want us to focus now and understand when it says the wrath of God was satisfied. I want you to think about how was that wrath satisfied. Let's stand and sing.